Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, among other places. Um, an interesting week for the Gators. It's been a week since we did a show. That wasn't uh, necessarily purposeful. It's just sometimes uh, things get in the way. Apologize for that. But we're going to start with a discussion of, of, I think, the game that more people are are passionate about. Uh, the Florida Bulls a huge lead at home to Mississippi State in what would have been a really nice resume game against you know a team Eric and I said was playing really well. They had lost by one point at Oklahoma, but otherwise, uh, you know, had kind of been on a roll and, and had blown some people out. Um, Florida builds a giant lead in the first half. Let's start there, Eric. How do you think Florida built the the big lead? What was going right? Uh, well, I mean, when you look at the offense they were running, it was a lot of their regular continuity offense where they get the ball into the high post, uh, use that kind of like Princeton cut a little bit, that chin cut, uh, and then they go from there. And uh, I, I think that they did some good work away from the ball where it would be like, you know, Keontae Johnson uh, setting a screen away from the ball for Noah Locke. And they were really concerned with uh, Keontae Johnson rolling after he set the screen. So they would collapse to him. So it gave up an open jump shot. Uh, and it just like when you look at, uh, at what they were doing offensively, it really was their normal kind of continuity offense. And, uh, yeah, you know, they, they make shots. But I, I think a lot of it was, uh, you know, they came out with energy. And I think that that's when you're when you're kind of going through your your continuity offenses where uh, there's not like the one defined. It's not a play ran for like, OK, we run this play and then this person's going to get a shot at this spot at this time. Uh, you know, it's a little more just it, it flows and you play out of it. And I thought that, you know, guys were cutting hard off it. They were uh, recognizing when to attack closeouts. And uh, yeah, ultimately, they have a, a really successful first half offensively. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with that. You could sense, at least I thought I, you could sense late in the first half that, that you know, Miss State was really able to get it to 10 at halftime, which is pretty manageable. Um, and I think it, it, it did kind of become evident that if that was how good Reggie Perry was going to play, then, you know, Florida was going to have to step on their throat a little bit in the first four minutes of the second half. So I don't know that maybe there's two questions in there, but the first is, uh, you know, how impressed were you with Reggie Perry? I feel like he's a guy that's, that's kind of running away with league player of the year right now. Yeah, he's just incredible. Uh, I mean, he's just so physically developed and, and polished. And he's like, you know, he's a mix of like explosive athlete and also smooth athlete. Uh, he's not, hasn't been a great three-point shooter this year, but I mean, was three for three against the Gators, yeah. of course. Uh, just like, uh, he didn't have like a ton of rebounds, but the rebounds he got were like tough ones in traffic. Uh, yeah, I just I just thought he was magnificent uh, offensively and, and defensively was just like a major deterrent at the rim. Uh, had a lot of big box outs that, that kept Florida from uh, from getting many offensive rebounds for a lot of the time when he was on the floor. And uh, yeah, just like a, just an outstanding performance, especially considering, I mean, I, I would say that Florida's game plan was probably to, to take him out of it. And, you know, it's just impossible to stop him. So uh, for that reason, I was just I was I was super impressed. Yeah, he had five first half turnovers, which was really the only chink in his armor. Um, but he, but he had only two in the second half, uh, and and that's kind of why. I mean, I alluded to the first four minutes too, which Florida actually did okay in that stretch. The the lead stayed the same, so it was ten points coming to the first media timeout. It was the second stretch where 
uh, Miss State started to put it to Florida. Uh, one way was in transition offense, and another way was straight line drives. Eric, what what did you see with Florida defensively that just made it easier for Mississippi State to get buckets? Uh, well, one thing I, I mean when you see uh, talking about transition defense like that, that was the worst Florida's played in transition defense, and I know that Mike White was livid about it. Uh, and I mean, you can kind of understand why. Just when a guy can get a defensive rebound and and dribble it all the way to to get a dunk in transition. I mean, that's, uh, that's rough. And especially it's not like Mississippi state has all these shooters that you're concerned about matching up with in transition. I mean, it was just their wings or, or Reggie Perry getting a rebound under their own hoop and just making a straight line for Florida's hoop. And, uh, and no one wanted to stop the ball. And that's the number one thing you have to do in transition is, is stop the ball. And uh, there was some times where, where guys were kind of in position to stop the ball, but instead of meeting the, the guy in transition at the free throw line where you make him pick up his dribble there, it was like, you know, six or seven feet from the hoop. So if you make a guy pick up a dribble there, well, he can Euro step, he can just take a normal layup. He can uh, take contact and finish the rim. So I just thought it was a really poor, poor job stopping the ball in transition. Yeah. I, you know, I, I agree with that. I thought another thing that happened in this game in the second half in particular was Scotty Lewis just getting abused on closeouts there. Yeah, Scotty, Scotty Lewis did not have a good defensive game. I mean, when you look at Tyson Carter just going off in the second half after he didn't do much, a lot of it was honestly he's getting guarded by Scotty Lewis on the perimeter and he had a straight line drive. And uh, there was, again, like some of these plays that we've talked about where uh, it's not like there's a couple plays where like Scotty Lewis wasn't like clean beat. But like, again, there's just like not a lot of rim protection behind him. I mean, with, with Omar Payne, when he was on the floor, he'll, he'll offer some of that, but a lot of it was Kerry Blackshear who just uh, uh, wasn't going to give much assistance if, if Scotty Lewis was going to get beat. But I mean, a couple of times, yeah, he just got clean, clean crossed over and, and blown by her. There was a couple of times where it was just like, he had the ball in his left hand. He's bouncing the ball with his left hand. He stares down Scotty Lewis. He drives to his left side and he just had a bigger burst than, than Lewis had. And uh, because he was a little bit, you know, he's pretty strong on the ball too. Once he got his shoulders past him, uh, it was kind of game over. There wasn't right. a chance for him to really recover. And uh, I mean, Tyson Carter, good, good player. Don't get me wrong, but he, you know, like he, he abused Scotty Lewis on, on multiple possessions. So I did think that was, uh, uh, that was something that was pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if I tweeted this or not. It's been like a week now, but, but I, I think one thing that inhibits Lewis from being, kind of an elite defender right now is strength, which you just alluded to. Like he can't necessarily recover when somebody gets their shoulders by him. Um, and then I think, I, I do think he's, and I've said this all season, I think he is a little spazzy on his, on the way that he defends and closes on, on closeouts. And I think it's, you know, some of it's over pursuit, like let me get out there and get in my guy's face. And, you know, Scotty's really good at that extended away from the basket but i don't think he defends with enough discipline closer to the rim yeah on it's funny when you think about someone as like an elite defender you really think of them just like sitting down in isolation and getting in a stance and, and stopping right. dribble penetration but when you think about like how basketball is played like there's there's not a lot of isolation basketball like that where you you do just you know stare down a guy and he tries to take you off the dribble even though i just said that tyson carter did that all second half uh, but most of <laughs> playing basketball and defense isn't, you know, you lock down a guy trying to drive on you. Uh, it's 
your man catches the ball and you go from a help side position to having to close out. And I, you know, when I, when I gauge defenders, I think so many people gauge defenders of like, Hey, let's see what happens when a guy tries to score on him uh, from a, you know, when he's dribbling the ball. But I, I just think in modern basketball, it's so much like what happens on closeouts and if a player's good at closeouts, he's a good defender. And uh, you know, if he's not, he struggles. And you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to blast Scotty Lewis. I, I will say this. If you look at any defensive metric, you it would not match the defensive reputation that Scotty no. Lewis has. Uh, a lot of the de- defensive metrics are not they, they don't like they don't suggest that he's a poor defender. Um, actually, it's actually crazy because like every defensive metric I use, with the caveat of defensive analytics are are not great um, all the time for individual players. Uh, everything makes him look like a average to slightly below or slightly above average in everything. So like some things say he's an average defender. Some say he's a little bit less than average defender. Some say he's a better defender than just slightly better than average, but there's definitely like nothing out there from a statistical standpoint that you could, that really would point to him being the elite defender that he has the reputation of. And, and I think a lot of it is because like, man, he does, he puts the effort in. There's, there's no question. I just think that some people need to realize that the effort isn't, isn't everything defensively. And uh, yeah, no, he's, I, I still like when I, when I watch him, I still think he's a, he is a good defender. He's, I, I'd probably say quite good defender. Um, I just don't think he's like a super, super good defender. And it's something that I've been looking at the numbers for uh, a, a while now. And have been like, and also just as I go back and watch the games and I'm, you know, see things from defensively that I don't always love. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I would say this Mississippi state game was, uh, one where I, you know, especially when Tyson Carter's just, you know, getting by him at will that it was like, you know, if, if he really wants to be, you know, the best defender in the, in the 2019 class or in the country, I mean, the sec, I mean, like Tyson Carter is not really someone who you can give that up to, but, uh, and, and I'll say this again. I mean, there's something that I have said in the past about Scotty Lewis that about the way he plays defense and. Uh, that I'm not a big fan of. And I think that if he, it would be a very easy way for him to improve in his perimeter defense. Uh, and that's that he tries to steal the ball on every possession. Like when he is guarding a guy one-on-one, it, he just is always swiping, uh, trying to steal the ball, trying to get a deflection. Uh, and, and some of that aggressiveness is certainly good. Uh, but there's again, times where Tyson Carter is dribbling him down and, uh, and Scotty Lewis gets caught reaching because he's looking to go the other way with a dunk. And, uh, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't think he's like thinking about offense from defense, but I mean, he's just someone who wants, like, he doesn't want to just like contain his man. He wants to like destroy his man and that's stealing yeah. the ball. And I do think that gets him in trouble at times. Yeah. I mean, he, and he, he only, he had, he had three steals in the game. So that's, I mean, oh, that's yeah. good. That's good production. Um, but you know, I just thought some, some careless defensive moments. Another curious thing that we had kind of isolated was rotations. And I know this is something that that you wanted to talk about because, for for whatever reason, Florida's best lineup against Mississippi State wasn't a lineup. Yeah, so uh, you know, I wrote about this. I tweeted about it. Uh, some of you may have seen that, but uh, it was also something I mentioned on this uh, on this podcast. It was just about how uh, Florida's lineup that started a lot of their SEC games. That was Andrew Nemhart, Noah Locke, Keontae Johnson, Omar Payne, and Kerry Blackshear. Uh, that lineup was doing just like super, super well. They were at 1.53 points per possession. Uh, I forget the number now. I, I should have in front of me, but it was like 0.65 points per possession defensively. So, I mean, both of those numbers are, are just ridiculous. Right. And they're doing it, uh, lar- you know, that, that group has only really started in the SEC. 
and they, you know, they played against good teams. So uh, the thing is like, sometimes these numbers about lineups, they can get kind of like cherry picked and abused. Like people will pick like some really obscure lineup that got to play garbage time in three minutes or, uh, you know, there's sometimes that I think that these kind of lineup, this kind of lineup analysis can be abused. But I mean, this this was Florida's starting lineup through most of their SEC games. And so they're they're playing in the SEC. They didn't get to play any of the cupcakes. They weren't playing against Long Beach State. Uh, and uh, they were playing again. They're playing starters. So it's not like, hey, this is a bench unit that went and took advantage of another team's bench unit. This was like their starters versus other good team starters. And their numbers were incredible. So that lineup's doing really well. And then we come to the Mississippi State game and uh, they don't play one single possession. That five that has started you know, six of Florida's you know, last eight games, uh, they, don't, they don't play at all. They don't, and I, I see a game where it was two possessions late. Uh, Florida couldn't get a stop when they needed it in the second half. Uh, well, their best defensive lineup was, was mm. that starting group I described earlier. Uh, they can't score unquestionably their best lineup offensively was the lineup that didn't play whatsoever. So I thought that was obviously really curious. Um, it's something that shocked me too, because once again, this wasn't a lineup that just like uh, uh, you, uh, you know, you, you pull 50 possessions where five of them were against Towson and seven of them were against Long Beach State. And you look overall and you're like, Oh man, these numbers are actually sneakily really good. It's like, no, Florida was playing their best basketball at the start of the SEC season with this being their starting five. So right. uh, I was just pretty surprised by it. And you know what? Like, I'll, I'll get after You know, I, I, there's so much like like I'm talking about. Uh, I've talked about so, so many times how I'm not a big fan of the timeout strategy that Florida's utilized. Yeah. You know, I'm really not a big fan of it. But like, I, cert- I, I can understand why they don't see the same way I do because I know what I'm talking about is, is just like very out of the norm. And I know that, you know, coaching in college basketball is, is very much convention and people learn a certain way and they keep it up because they don't really want to be there. So, so I mean, when I harp on timeout strategy, uh, I, I do understand that what I'm asking to do is quite out of convention, which is not normal for college basketball. Uh, but when it comes to not playing what's unquestionably your best lineup, I, I mean, that shocks me. And then we go to the Vanderbilt game, which I know we're not getting into yet, uh, but they played they, they play zero possessions in that game yeah. as well. And that's, once again, a game where, uh, you know, you're playing the whatever 225th best defense in the country, Vanderbilt, and you're at 0.97 points for possession. So uh, I know I've just talked for like 10 minutes straight, Neil, but uh, <laughs> what is uh, that is uh, that is I, I do I do just simply find it fairly baffling. And I'm uh, I'm interested if you have a take. Well, I mean, I just think these are these are uh, the larger kind of big picture questions that are starting to to find some some root in like reality in terms of the way that you and I, you know, and I get it. I, you know, a lot of people would say, well, we saw all this way before. And maybe you did. I, I mean, look, I, I think Eric and I tend to be pretty analytic driven. And, and there are some trends with the way that this basketball team is being coached, you know, analytic and scheme driven um, that, that I think are concerning. Uh, and we will get into Vanderbilt and why that didn't make me feel any better in a little bit. Um, I go, well, I shouldn't say that, but we'll get into it. Uh, but I thought this was, this was one of those things where if you have an, if you have a lineup, that's so clearly your best offensive lineup and your best defensive lineup, then, you know, and you're a staff that certainly evaluates analytics to some extent. 
that's really bizarre, especially when you have a huge lead and you kind of, and you just let it dwindle. I mean, Mississippi state was like 65% from the field in the second half, Eric. So, you know, at some point, how are you not trying your best combination to get stops? Uh, it's just the kind these are the types of baffling things, um, you know, that I don't understand. And I, Again, I think that's probably baffling thing number one. I think baffling thing two, we talked about on the podcast on the last show, is just the way Florida has schemed screen and roll defense with Kerry Blackshear. Um, you know, because when you look at Kerry Blackshear on paper and, and you look at actually his like offensive ratings, you know, he's been extraordinarily productive, uh, Eric, but, you know, they're not putting him in a position to succeed defensively or at least. Haven't that haven't, I don't think done that. I don't think they've done that enough. Um, and then, you know, a third one that I would add that Eric hasn't tweeted about, and it's something that I brought up on a previous podcast and I'm kind of interested in Eric's take. I, I guess we talked a little bit about shifting to more pack line, like Neil Blackman high school team type defense. But the big question I have is like an elite offensive team, Auburn was shut down because you played a little more pack line. You got into gaps a little bit more. And we really just haven't seen Florida do that other than a possession or two since. And it's just mind boggling to me why, you know, that's not done. I get that you scout every opponent and you want to put in a plan for everybody, but at some point, you know, it's college basketball and you don't want to overthink things. I think now that I'm talking 10 minutes, you want to do what is the most effective and simplify the game for your players who at the end of the day are still 18 to 23 and, and their learning curve intellectually about the sport, you know, ranges anywhere from pretty novice to, to you know, high IQ player like Kerry Blackshear. But Kerry has to know that the scheme isn't the best for him. He's going to try real hard. But, you know, at some point you kind of wonder about that. Yeah, it's one of those things, too, that even when they talked about uh, when we first found out that they were going to move the three-point line back, uh, I actually was like, wow, I think this is going to make more teams play the pack line style just because – uh, the thing that you're usually giving up when you play the pack line defense is you're going to give up some, some threes. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, that's kind of the trade-off you're making. You're going to defend the, uh, the rim and you're going to defend the paint better, but yeah, you, you're going to give up some threes. Uh, so when the, you know, the line move back, I was like, Hey, these teams that play pack line, uh, that are used to taking away the, the rim. I mean, uh, they're going to be pretty happy that the three point shots they give up are now going to be further. So uh, I wonder if that plays, I, I mean, this, the SEC's three point shooting numbers are like dismal right now. I, I haven't checked what it is. Uh, today but I mean uh, the other week the the SEC was averaging like 30.7 percent and I mean like we're a good chunk into the SEC season at that point so uh, yeah. so the shooting's not great and uh, again when you look at Florida's three-point defense it's actually it's actually really good and that's like you know they had even, like Missouri just like rains down threes on Florida and it wasn't enough to like ruin Florida's like overall three-point defense on the season at all like their three-point defense is still uh, spectacular it's just like these, these breakdowns that are allowing for, for really easy buckets and uh, at the rim. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the, uh, the, the defense, the, the aggressive defense is, is, is working best for this team. And uh, I also think that one, another thing too, is like you see Mississippi state where, where things really wear down uh, in the second half. Like I, I honestly wonder if Florida did just start to get tired and, and that didn't help either because uh, once again, this, this kind of aggressive pick and roll defense Florida is playing. Uh, it means that if the ball gets reversed, uh, the opponent is playing four on three and the Gators need to scramble. And I think that, you know, you do that, you know, most teams are running, you know, 30, 40, 50 pick and rolls a game. Uh, you play that style of defense that many times and 
that's going to be pretty tough to, uh, to keep that energy up, to keep that, uh, that intensity. So I, I'm not often one that really thinks like, like there's a lot of people that are like, Oh yeah, this team looks tired out there. Watch like at any level of basketball. I just like, don't, I just quite frankly, don't notice that very, very often. Uh, right. I mean, I just see Florida getting worn down and, and maybe it's mental too, because again, like that's pretty challenging to play three on four and figure out what passes you're taking away, who you're closing out to getting back to your chat. Yeah. I just think that that's, um, that's tough. And uh, I, I will also say going back to uh, going back to Florida, never playing their, their, their lineup. I'd be the, the easy answer to why they didn't was, uh, you know, Scotty Lewis has a really good first half of basketball. Cause I mean, he played like 33 minutes. Uh, he's yeah. not in the, the best five. So, I mean, if he plays 33 minutes, that does limit the, uh, you know, limit the, the opportunities you have to put out what has been your best five. Uh, yeah. But I also will say, I mean, like I, I definitely commend Scotty Lewis for having a really good first half. But I, again, I think when you look at, look at Florida's larger sample size, you, you probably know that Scotty Lewis isn't going to continue to, to hit all the jump shots he was hitting. And uh, while I think his defense was, you know, it was, it was good in the, in the first half. I think he had some tough moments in the second half. Uh, yep. that's where you've got to, that's where you've got to say like, okay, this isn't quite working. Uh, let's get to our, our, our best lineup. So I, I that's, that's one thing I, I understand like starting him again in the second half. I, I totally get that. He had a great first half, uh, but he just like the numbers would suggest cooled off and kind of regressed to, to his mean offensively. And I don't think he was uh, outstanding defensively. So I just think like when things are starting to really, really, really struggle, like why don't you go to your, your ace in the hole, this lineup that's been spectacular. And uh, instead they kept their, their closer in the bullpen. Like that, I, I just find it pretty wild. Yeah. But I, I honestly, it honestly just makes me think like perhaps they're not privy to the, to the data because um, if they were, I'm just would be a little bit surprised if they at them not using that lineup for two consecutive games where things didn't go very well. Uh, but again, I almost would think that your eye test would notice that too, because Florida's best basketball this year has been when they, when they started that five. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think these are all kind of fair questions and, and, you know, I think that's one of the things that's frustrating to me and, and a reason that I think, you know, if this season continues on the trend line that it's on, uh, you know, maybe Florida will make the NCAA tournament and, you know, who knows? There's certainly, again, there's, there is certainly enough talent on the team to win one, two games in the NCAA tournament. I don't say that like, you know, I, I'm not being an optimist. That's a, that's a factual reality. Uh, you know, an optimist would say, well, there's enough talent. If they got to the sweet 16, they could win a game. I don't know. But, you know, I think, um, I think there's second week in talent, but I haven't thought that this has been a particularly good coaching job. Uh, by by this staff um, I would say that like I was thinking about it this way for to kind of think about what I wanted to say on the show and I, I think in a lot of ways last season's coaching job was a lot better uh, with the exception of maybe the Georgia game um, but even in the Georgia game like Andrew Nimhard got hurt and missed most of the first half and so you know when Georgia wasn't playing well Florida couldn't score because they didn't really have a secondary option at point guard beyond Kayvon Allen. But last year, you know, you kind of had Jalen Hudson, your all SEC player, just go ghost for 25 games. Um, and Florida kind of had to coach around that. And they still played elite defense. And, you know, they found a way against what I think was a top 10 schedule to, to piece together 19 wins and beat a team full of pros in the NCAA tournament. Like that – that's a coaching job where like when the hive talks about 
the team being inconsistent or mediocre, I say, well, they started three freshmen and their best offensive player wasn't really a factor for, again, 25 games in the season. I mean, he just disappeared for the most part um, and hurt the team, as we talked about on this show at the time, at, at times. This year, Eric, um, you know, I have seen schematic problems. I have seen lineup choice problems. Uh, I'm with you on timeout usage. Um, I don't know why they don't play different pick and roll coverage. I guess that's a schematic issue. So, and, and then they've had these games where they're really inconsistent and played at the level of their competition, which I also think is kind of a nice place to transition to Vanderbilt. But when this kind of thing happens, and then you take a long view look at a program that's 33 and 24 in its last 57 games season and a little more than a half. Um, you know, I think you look at next year for Mike White and you say, it's a really important year and maybe even a make or break year. Yeah. I, I haven't been particularly, you know, pumped with the coaching this year. I, I do think that uh, it was, it was like, it's interesting too. Cause I, I would say one of the best things that, that, coaching-wise that's happened was when they scrapped the initial offense and, and put in a new offense. Yes, yes. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I saw it coming for miles away that that offense wasn't going to work for, you know, and we've got the receipts in this podcast if someone wants to go back to the episode. Uh, even You know, I could see that it wasn't going to work playing the uh, the kind of free-flowing dribble-drive offense with with the talent that was on the court. So it's one of those things where I'm like, hey, I really actually do commend the, the coaching staff for being able to ad- adapt there and uh, and and get an offense that has been pretty good. Like even thinking about it, I mean, when Florida was up to like 24th in the country in offensive efficiency, that was like 24th, considering that they started the season like super super poorly. So it's probably like for the first you know six games of the SEC, they were probably like a top 15 offensive team in the country, like to, to like average it out to 24. So. Uh, so I, you know, I want to say that was a really good coaching decision, but it's also like Matt, like I really feel like you could have seen this coming. You could have seen the offensive problems coming. Um, I mean, with the defense, it's uh, uh, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I, I don't know how serious Mike White was when he said this, but you know, something he said was like, you know, this is the worst defensive team I've ever coached. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, he had two pretty poor ones at Louisiana Tech, like the year that he uh, he had his first coaching job at. Uh, you know, the first year he was at Louisiana Tech, he had a pretty poor defensive team by the numbers, uh, had a pretty, you know, not a great one uh, another year as well. He also had some really good defensive teams at Louisiana Tech, but uh, so I'm not sure if he was, you know, really saying that. But uh, but yeah, again, I, I do think the lack of adaptability on that side has, has been concerning. And uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, it's a little bit of my, you know, I, I, I love analytics and I just don't think that this team has made decisions that, that show that they have that kind of dedication, which is personally like a little bit concerning to me because I, I just think if you're not using analytics, uh, you're not putting your, you're not helping your, you're not doing yourself any favors. And I know they, uh, I, I do know that they use analytics. I don't know to what, to what extent I, I would say then, you know, it's, it's a lot of what I write about and what I talk about on this podcast of the things that I think that they do that aren't analytically driven. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say I've, you know, certainly haven't been totally plussed with the, uh, with the coaching job this year either. Yeah, I mean it's it's been tough uh, at times, and and um, you know I didn't think Florida was was much better against Vanderbilt. They took care of the ball on the road, which uh, really was kind of the difference. Florida only seven turnovers, Vanderbilt seventeen. But 
um, third straight game where they got manhandled on the glass, more or less. I mean, you know, they, boy, get out-rebounded 37-28 by Vanderbilt. It's pretty intense. Um, and then, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the – Eric talked a bit about rotations. Florida doesn't play that lineup that's their best, and they only – I think it was like 0.96 or 0.97 points per possession against yeah, it was one the of Vanderbilt those, yeah. team. That's pretty bad defensively. Um, but that's kind of been – they've just got such a big athleticism deficit for the most part that that they haven't been able to slow a lot of people down. And, and of course, now without Neesmith, they can't score. So, uh, you know, a close game for Vanderbilt because – Florida had chance, and and that that's and that's the other thing. Florida has so many chances to kind of stretch it and put it away, and you know they just didn't. There's no killer instinct. It seems like. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say the uh, the the body language or the intensity the team played with was particularly concerning. Um, you know, I didn't. You know, once again, I really wish that they played their best lineup for the reasons I laid out before. Uh, one right. thing I should say, in 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 all fairness, you know, in a little bit of defense. Uh, one thing that has been a, a big issue of the, of this team that I think some people have been obviously like more critical of kind of the big overarching issues at times, like, you know, it was the start of the season and people were really upset with the, you know, the offense in these last games, it's been, you know, it's really upset with the defense. Uh, one of the things that hasn't gotten like as much play uh, has been just the fact that like Florida has not been able to get much production from their bench, like at, at all. Um, a lot of their players coming off the pine just have not had much of an impact or, you know, worse than that, they've had some negative impacts. So I, right. I do understand that like, it, it, it is a little bit uh, like, I think that they're probably feeling like they're searching a little bit for, for answers just because uh, yeah. When, when they're running out backcourts of, of Trey Mann and Quez Glover, that, that hasn't gone great this year uh, when they, he hasn't been healthy for a while, but yeah, when it was like, you're rolling out like, you know, Quez Glover, uh, Noah Locke, Trey Mann, Omar Payne, Dante Bassett, like lineups like that just like have, have not been working. Uh, so I will say that that's a bit of an issue. And again, I look at the, uh, I look at the line, the numbers, the lineup analysis for, for against Vanderbilt. And yeah, it was just like Florida started starting group, uh, not the starting group. I you know wanted them to play, but like, you know, the uh, Nemhart, Locke, Dante Johnson, Lewis and Blackshear, uh, they still did have actually really good numbers on both sides of the floor. Uh, but just as soon as they as soon as they went to their bench, uh, things didn't go particularly well. And uh, yeah, I would say that's one of the uh, one of the issues is again like Vanderbilt's not a very good team, uh, but Florida's bench guys still just couldn't find a way to be particularly effective. Yeah, um, you know I think definitely fair. One guy that was effective was Keontae Johnson. Yeah, I mean in a game where he is. <laughs> unquestionably the most athletic guy in the floor and the strongest guy on the floor. I mean, he's just doing whatever he wanted. So, uh, which is something that you, you, he's got to do. I mean, uh, it's a little bit concerning too, that it, there was some other guys that weren't able to just like impose their will, but, but Keontae Johnson did. And uh, yeah, I, I, I know you were uh, just a huge fan of his game and the leadership he brought. So I don't talk about that. Yeah. I mean, look, I just think, I think that um, I do think that this team kind of needs an alpha uh, I respect, I think Andrew is a good leader. Um, you know, I do, I, I, he seems to kind of lead by example. One thing about Andrew is that he's calm. Uh, you know, I don't think Andrew, you're rarely going to see him play rattled. 
maybe occasionally as a freshman, but certainly not really this season at any point in time. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I saw Keontae grab Scotty Lewis on one of his, you know, closeouts where he got blown by on the baseline, like after and talked to him. And, you know, Scotty's a vocal kid and it was, it was a good moment because I just feel like Keontae needs more of those. I think, I think he's the guy that if this team is going to make any sort of leap, um, you know, they need somebody that just picks up everybody's intensity level and, and picks everybody's concentration level. Cause I think there's a difference between like playing hard and like playing hard and smart. And that's what's always been so impressive to me about Keontae Johnson is that he's so fundamentally sound. Like when he drives the lane, he's going to play off two feet. A lot of the times when he, you know, he, he will recognize and diagnose a closeout before he catches a pass that, yeah, sometimes I think Keontae travels a little too much when, when he catches those passes to attack closeouts, but he it's, it, those are decisive turnovers, right? Like he's made a decision what he wants to do with the basketball and, and there he, in, in those situations, he just gets sped up. And I think you live with those as a coach uh, from time to time because it's a player who's, who's reacting. It's not a player who's, who's on the floor thinking, um, you know, overthinking things. And so, you know, those are just leadership qualities to me. And, and uh, you know, I'd like to see it from because I think Florida's other real candidates to lead Blackshear, Nimhard, Locke uh, are quiet guys. And, and look, you know, it's not beat on Scotty Lewis night. He had a great game against Mississippi State, especially, you know, his effort and his offense and his steals. But, you know, he plays 20 minutes against Vanderbilt and picks up four fouls, only scores two points, and, and really goes one of five from the field, takes bad shots. That's not who your leader's going to be, no matter how vocal or engaging the kid is. Yeah, I think that, again, Keontae Johnson is just someone that I would, I would want my players to emulate, someone that plays a simple game that's that's really effective uh that just he, he doesn't like waste motion i think his like economy of motion is really good like uh he knows he right. he knows that he's just lethal on closeouts uh so he doesn't go when he's he doesn't just you know get the ball start bouncing it staring down his defender and try to drive that way he knows that the ball's gonna move and he'll get a closeout and no one's gonna be able to stop him and uh, obviously he competes on the the glass uh has been a really really good shooter this year uh, I know that his motor has, has definitely been something that, that uh, uh, Mike White has talked about a few times, and it's something that probably would, would uh, hurt him as a leader in the, eyes of, in the eyes of the coaching staff at times. But, uh, uh, yeah, when you just see the, like the, the style in, in which he plays, I, I think he is very much, uh, very much someone that, uh, that you'd want your other players to, to emulate. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and that's, that's kind of – and I just think Florida needs that from somebody like who on the team is going to, going to pick the team's level up, pick the team's intensity up. And, and, you know, I think a lot of times last year, it's another thing that we kind of took for granted with Kavarius Hayes and, and Kayvon Allen, I think in a different way, uh, just because, you know, Kayvon was so consistent in how hard he played all the time and how focused he was defensively. But, you know, obviously he wasn't ever going to say anything, but Kavarius Hayes would, um, so, you know, I just think Florida lacks that component to some extent still. And, and that's where, you know, these people that are like kind of writing off the fact that Florida has basically one upperclassman because Dante Bassett has now only appeared in 12 games. So, you know, Florida's basically playing with a senior grad transfer and Dante doesn't play very much. So, you know, it's just a team full of freshmen and sophomores. And yeah, you know, young in college basketball is, is relative. 
Um, and three of those sophomores have started a lot, but it doesn't mean that Florida's cultivated necessary leadership and maybe Keontae can be that as we approach March. Florida will play Georgia Wednesday night um, in the O'Connell Center. Uh, and the Bulldogs have lost four or five, uh, but they do have one of the nation's best players in Anthony Edwards. Yeah, he's a treat to watch. I, I, I think he's the real deal. Uh, I think that uh, uh, there's a little bit of discussion, obviously, before the year. Was it, you know, was it Cole Anthony the best player? Was it Anthony Edwards? Uh, I, I thought before the season it was Anthony Edwards, and, and I do think he has backed that up. Uh, he's just so, like, polished. Uh, for someone that's that, like, just, like, physically strong, like, he just, like, is, is, is built incredibly, but he, he plays smart, too. Like, he's not just, like, a, a bowling ball or a bull in a china shop. Uh, he hasn't uh, hasn't shot the ball great. That would be the the weak point of his offensive game. But uh, despite that, uh, he's just still a super effective, efficient offensive player. And uh, when you are as big as he is and can handle the ball like he is, it's it's tough to keep him out of the paint. And uh, even though people are you know want him to be a shooter, they they maybe give him that cushion on the perimeter. Uh, the thing is, if you give him that cushion, he's going to get up to a full sprint while he attacks you downhill, and then at right. that point, it's it's really tough to stop him. So. Uh, you know, I look at the other players on the team. I'm not like, uh, you know, not a, uh, not a, a big fan of a lot of the guys on the team. Like they've got some good dudes, but, uh, not a particularly talented roster, but yeah, no, Anthony Edwards, he's the real deal. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I noticed about Anthony Edwards is like, as they went into their losing streak, like Tom Crean kind of stopped messing around, like the last two games, Anthony Edwards just played 40 minutes and 39 minutes. Oh. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I looked at uh, looking at their on-off numbers as well. I mean, he is the one-man, uh, the one-man offense. And uh, one other thing too, just going back to the way that like he really is the one-man offense. They also don't really have many shooters on the floor, so it's like, and, and he's someone who like lives at getting to the rim. And you just, yeah, once again, you just see like uh, you see teams just loading up the paint against him because uh, also Georgia's seen a lot of zone because of this. They don't, they just don't have a lot of a lot of shooters, so. Uh, despite the fact that teams are just loading up the paint, they're, they're daring other guys to shoot like severe Wheeler and, you know, Rayshon Hammonds, uh, Tyree Krupp, like they're, they're daring those guys to shoot. Uh, yet Anthony Edwards is still just like finding a way to the rim. So uh, that's interesting to see that they've just, uh, yeah, that, you know, Kareem's just been like, yeah, we're going to play you a ton. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I would have to think that, you know, playing at Florida, it's, it's going to be a little bit of the same. Yeah, no, I would expect him to play 38 to 40 minutes if, if there's no foul issues. And he hasn't had a ton of foul trouble. Uh, Kentucky got him into foul trouble, fouled him out. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think what they've realized is that they just need him to be on the floor pretty much all the time if they if they want to have a chance to win games in the conference. Because um, it's been tough sledding. You know, he was – and, and that's not, it's not like he wasn't playing much. He was playing 30, 31 minutes. A night but now the last two 39 and 40 um you know they did beat texas a&m in athens uh recently but but they got brian tyreed against ole miss in athens lost a nipper to uh missouri and and interestingly like kind of well, they had one really good game with kentucky and were relatively competitive against kentucky at rup so you know, this is not a Georgia team that has been uncompetitive. And in fact, at 12 and nine, uh, you know, you could argue that, you know, they have some nice wins. Um, 
but for the most part, not not a team that's been uncompetitive. I mean, they got blown out by Dayton, but that's about it in terms of and Arizona State, which is kind of a weird one. Uh, it, but that was in Tempe. Um, so, you know, again, not a team that's getting run out of the gym much, but uh, certainly a 30-point loss in this state. So there's a couple exceptions. But, but uh, you know, a team, anytime you play a team with – and Florida's struggled with teams that, that have had like an elite player. We just saw we saw what Reggie Perry did, you know. So, uh, all hands on deck to defend Edwards, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And going back to like they've been really competitive, mostly just because you know Anthony Edwards is, is spectacular offensively. Uh, they've definitely, I would say, like from what I've seen, it's definitely their defense that's a bit of the problem. And yeah, uh, you know, you do see that they play a they play a point guard severe wheeler who's like five foot nine or five foot ten maybe uh and a freshman uh he's a good player don't get me wrong but I, i'm someone like i think when you think about like who is like your most important defenders people think about like you know you your wing defender that's going to be most important your center uh, i'm always someone who thinks that your point guard needs to be one of your best defenders because in modern basketball if your point guard's not a good defender teams are going to either just pick and roll him to death uh, or they're going to try to get switches and then uh, attack with one of your wings against your small point guards. So I, I do think they have a little bit of problems sometimes with Sabir Wheeler out there, who, uh, yeah, I, I really do think is a good player. But small point guard, freshman, uh-huh. uh, as well. Uh, you know, they've got a couple of freshmen in the front court. Uh, and again, you usually want your, you know, having an anchor at the five who's a, a great shot blocker or uh, just, yeah, kind of a veteran presence down there who can kind of read the floor well. Uh, that's usually what good defensive teams have. And, and yeah, they, they don't have that guy at Georgia. So I, I do think they can kind of get just pretty scrambled defensively. Uh, and they're a team that, you know, Florida has a definite chance to put up some serious points on. Yeah, they are a team that has done two things well that have been problematic for Florida. Um, not the rain on people's parades. But one thing they've done well is offensive rebound, 47th in the country in offensive rebounding. Another thing they do really well is straight line drive. Uh, they They... They do it all the time. It's a staple in any Tom Crean system. Uh, but they take 38% of their their attempts at the rim, and those aren't feeding the post to Rayshon Hammonds. Like, a lot of that is just physical guards that try to get downhill and make contact, including Edwards. Um, and that's probably where they're the best offensively, Eric, is, is when they can get those drives going because it's not a team that shoots the ball particularly well. No, I I would say they're they're definitely best in transition. That would be another thing because mm-hmm. you know they do have some of those guys that can mm-hmm. drive, and when they can do it against an offense or against a defense that's not set, that'll uh, that always helps. So, uh, uh, yeah, definitely looking at the numbers, uh, they're they're definitely best in transition. You know, Anthony Edwards, just like someone that big, that fast in transition, that that's really tough. And uh, yeah, they do have, they do have some you know some of those younger guys in the front court, uh, not great defenders, but good athletes, and they'll be good defenders one day. Uh, but uh, yeah, they go yeah. on the floor, and I do think that, again that that is a bit of a a bit of a cream thing to uh, uh, to play that tempo. Uh, and uh, his teams, you know, usually play pretty fast. Going back to uh, going back to the Marquette and some of those Indiana teams, but um, yeah, I, I think the two once you 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 should be able to realize pretty quick if you're a team that struggles in the half court offensively that uh, that yeah you should be kind of pushing it and trying to get those easy buckets. So uh, that's another thing, you know, while we're adding to the things that they have done well that has been, you know, an issue for Florida, I would say like, yeah, they, they are a really good transition offense team. Uh, and you definitely don't want a repeat of the Mississippi state transition defense. Yeah, no, I would, uh, I would agree with that. And, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of the key for Florida is make sure you're, you're competing on the glass and, 
getting back in your transition defense because they aren't, again, they're not a good, they're not going to light you up from outside 305th in the country uh, in three point percentage. Uh, but, but, you know, 32nd and two. So they want to get to the basket and make you defend in the paint. And so Florida's got to be ready for that. One thing I thought was pretty interesting is the Haslametric. Uh, they have an away from home ranking and home. And Georgia has the largest disparity in the country in terms of their home court performance versus their road performance. Bulldogs are 337th out of 353 in uh, road performance. So a far worse team away from the friendly confines of Stegman Coliseum. If, uh, if someone wants the, the best tip I can give you for figuring out an edge when it comes to March and you're filling out your brackets, uh, go look at how teams have done away from home or on neutral sites versus their home record. Uh, Cause there is some teams like, uh, like a Georgia, usually teams that are you know better than Georgia, but you look at their record and you're like, Oh wow. They just like had only one loss at home but they weren't great on the road or, right. or, you know, you look at a team's resume and they have a bunch of big wins, but they were all at home. Uh, something that has, I've definitely noticed an improvement in my personal brackets over the years is <laughs> taking a look at those, those metrics, like those Haslam metrics, uh, uh, you know, home versus away. Uh, but I get things. So, so yeah, that is a little bit early for that. <laughs> but while you mention it, I do think that that metric is, uh, is pretty interesting. Bracket uh, but, tips. Uh, I love it. So, uh, so Neil, do you have uh, do you have anything else on that game? Where uh, I, I actually have listener questions that got sent to me, so I, I've got some listener questions to throw out. If you uh, don't have anything left on the, the Georgia game here, I don't. So let's let's get into listener questions. So first of all, um, thank you to all, everyone who has uh, sent me listener questions. Um, in the future, though, if you probably want to send those to the uh, to Neil at the uh, the Florida Basketball Hour account, it'll just there's a couple that I realized were like in my. Uh, in my folder from like a month ago. So, uh, yes. those just, so yeah. So if you do have questions, um, not that I don't want to read them, but it's just definitely best if you send this to Neil at uh, the Florida basketball Hour Twitter. But anyways, uh, uh, Christian asked, uh, if the high school team that you coached played the high school team that Neil coached, who would win? <laughs> and I thought that was a great question. Um, <laughs> I will say the answer is, uh, is Neil's team would, would absolutely win. Uh, the difference in talent <laughs> from South Florida is, uh, it's very different than the talent in, uh, in, in Western Canada, where, where I live. Uh, you, you know, like in, in Canada, there's like, there's U sports, which I would say is like low division one, high division two. Like they've got those teams like Carlton or Ryerson that go play the division one teams in the summer and always get all those wins. So I would say that's like, you know, low division one, high division two. Uh, and then there's like, uh, you know, CCAA, which is like, you know, low division two, II, division three. So in my like seven years of coaching, I've had, Two guys play U Sports. One of them had Division One offers, but he ended up staying in Canada. Then uh, I've had like seven or eight guys play, uh, you know, play CCA, which is yeah, you know, like high Division Three or low Division Two. So, uh, so Neil, I do think you would have the uh, the advantage in that matchup. Should our teams find a way to play each other? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Um, you know, some <laughs> sometimes I, I feel like uh, that's I feel like we probably would just because. You know, we do. We are blessed with a couple guys that that are D one prospects. Um, we're very young. Uh, I'll tell you guys that. Um, and we would get we would get the pants out coached of us. So we'll see. No, well, <laughs> we'll you, see. You, you know, I'm telling you this deal. If our teams played, and you know, once you you totally just like out talent my team and, and out coach me and win, I I would be I would go full Calipari. I'd be like, my guys are young. Um, this game was played too far from home. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, I would have every excuse in the book, but I, I do think that that would be a, that would be a win for Neil's team. Um, this is an interesting question from David uh. James. He says, um, how would you use Scotty Lewis offensively? And uh, I want to throw that one to you. It's a little bit. Yeah, we actually, no, we didn't really talk about it. So I want to throw that one to you. What would be, uh, how, how would you like to see, you know, Scotty Lewis used offensively or uh, yeah. How, uh, what are your thoughts there? You know, I just wish he had a little bit better handles because I feel like probably the best thing to do would be to get Payne and Blackshear up on those horn sets and see if you could get him some sort of handoff where he could come around and curl down towards the basket with the ball. And I don't, just, I just don't think he handles well enough necessarily to do that, Eric. I, I don't think so either. So I actually think I, I would use him like a power forward. Like I would use him in the dunker spot. I would keep him on the baseline yeah. near the rim. Like, like the, the best things that we've seen from Scotty Lewis are as a cutter where he just like elevates over guys or he catches the ball on one side of the rim, uses one dribble and then like reverses to the other. Like he has some incredible finishes that way. So I would honestly use him like, like a power forward. I, I would use him in the dunker spot. I'd use him on the baseline and I would just want him catching the ball uh, near the rim and, and finishing. And that, that I would want that to be his role. So uh, definitely different than than he's been used or what a lot of people would think. Uh, I don't know if, you know, it certainly wouldn't be the best for his pro prospects, but if you want to get the best out of Scotty Lewis, I would, I would honestly use, like, I, I would, like when they run those pick and rolls where like Kerry Blackshear has been setting the screen and Omar Payne has been sealing his man under the hoop. Like I, I would honestly use that Omar Payne role as Scotty Lewis when he's on the floor. Like I, I would really play him offensively, like a power forward. Um, if he catches the ball anywhere near the rim, uh, he'd be in great shape where he hasn't been great is when he's had to catch the ball in the perimeter and make plays. So uh, yeah, that'd be my take. That's a good I question. I like it. I think that's a great um, question. Uh, Gail Gator says, uh, or ask uh, Eric, there don't seem to be many reliable analytics to evaluate a defender individually. Is there one you like to use? Uh, mm. Which is actually interesting. I guess I, I, there was a, we talked about that a little bit before. Uh, there are some tough ones. I, I, I would say the biggest thing, uh, is that I find that the numbers are, are quite poor when, like, like I use Synergy, this, you know, this this uh, database that a lot of you know teams use, and uh, they log defensive numbers, but it's always like whoever was defending or closest to the shooter. So, like, you know, if Eric Fawcett's out on the perimeter, he gets absolutely burned and his ankles get broken, and the guy's a straight line drive, and out of desperation, Neil Blackman rotates over and tries to contest the shot, but it's a certain layup. Uh, Neil Blackman gets dinged with the the layup allowed, even though it's like 100% my fault. So those numbers are quite poor. Um, uh, so cat out of the bag a little bit. Um, I haven't actually told Neil this or many people. Um, I've been, uh, I have been doing some analytics consulting for a division one team this year. Um, Whoa, and, uh, this is, so, yeah. So uh, anyways, uh, one thing that, th so this is my, my personal secret method um, that I will, that I like to use. So what happens is, uh, I like to, uh, what, essentially every point given up has to be, is going to be assigned to every player that, that I personally deem responsible. So once again, if, if there's a pick and roll that's played really poorly by two players, and I would say that both of them are at fault and it gives up a layup, um, each of those players would get dinged one point each. Um, or say that two players defend an action really poorly and it gives up a three-pointer, those two players would get um, 1.5 points each. So, re or, or if one player 
uh, is the only one at fault and he gives up a, a two point bucket, he would get those two, bu- those two points assigned to him. Uh, and then for every point uh, for every shot, a player defends, uh, he would get uh, credited for defending that shot as well. Uh, so that's that. So it's something that's has to be logged manually, but that's uh, that's my system of, uh, of really grading defenders is, is just every, and you know, if, if three players are at fault for two points, I, I break that down too, and they all get a fraction or four of them, which is actually very rare that, that there's that many people responsible, but, um, yeah, those guys would, uh, uh, so, so that's my way. So that it's just like placing fault on the, the players that I, I think are at fault. And then, uh, but I also, I also break down the shot. So once again, if, if two players give up, uh, I deem responsible for a two point layup, they would each get half of a shot defended because they divide that shot, uh, and then they would each get one point uh, dinged against them. So, so ultimately, you get a a points per possession number that I think is very accurate um, versus just giving the uh, the individual defender. But Neil, is there any like defensive analytics you you like, or any ones you think are terrible, or what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I like zone rating. Mm. Um, do I? One of what? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think I'm trying to think if, if there's anything else I want to talk about about that. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm gonna, you know. Um. Yeah, well, I got I got one more one last question. It's from All Gator Seven Eighty Nine, and I'm gonna answer this question just a little bit similar. Uh, it, it says, "What analytics do you like to use for rebounding?" Um, that's another one that I do that I do manually. Mm-hmm. Um, by, uh, but what I do is I credit players for box outs. I don't actually really credit players for getting the basketball. Um, that's, so that's a little, I, I, we don't have to talk too much about my individual analytic usage, but, um, that, and, and, but for both the defense and the rebounding, I also like to look at on off numbers for particular players and, uh, and see, uh, uh, is there just like trends? Like if there's this particular front court that when they're on the team struggles to really rebound, I'm going to start looking at the film and seeing, you know, who's at fault. Um, uh, unsurprisingly, when Kerry Blackshear's on the floor, Florida always defensively rebounds the ball better, uh, I just as you'd expect. So that there's things like that that, uh, that definitely match the eye test. But uh, yeah, those are those are the listener questions from from my inbox, Neil. That's nice. I, and I, I would add win shares to it. I think there's some value in defensive win shares. It's a kind mm-hmm. of complex uh, formula, but but the idea is to estimate an individual player's contribution to their team's win total. And in, in for defensive win shares, you compute the player's marginal uh, defense from his defensive rating, and divide it into marginal points per win. And it's a little similar to the kind of way that that uh, that Eric calculates it, I guess. Uh, but I think it's a little bit better than like player efficiency rating, which is like way too offensive biased. Um, so I would say that and defensive zone rating. Um, which is just a way of, at least the way that I've traditionally viewed it is a way of just kind of understanding how players guard certain areas on the floor when the ball is around them. Um, and, and so I think probably those two uh, are useful. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't, with, with, with us, we just kind of watch video and, and like, like Eric said, like we'll, we'll watch video and use coachable moments to like, make corrections there's just such a drastic difference between coaching high school and college that it's kind of it's kind of difficult to get like too into like what's your like 15 year old guard zone rating right like you just wanted to like you know not get lost in the screen yeah 
Yeah, no, that, but uh, no, it is interesting. I, I to see these. Uh, some of those ones were buried deeper in my uh, my inbox. Yeah. So I'm sorry for those it's guys, tough. but uh, it's definitely some people that are interested in the, the analytics that wanted to ask me that. But uh, yeah, so appreciate those questions. But definitely, uh, yeah, throw throw any questions to the uh, to the the Twitter account for Florida Basketball Hour and give it a follow if you haven't already. If you do have questions, yeah, please do. Um, so that's the show tonight. Uh, you know, a lot of kind of long view thoughts on the program you know i again i and i would say still plenty of basketball to be played this year we're kind of trending towards uh you want to call it a hot seat a warm seat you know a huge make or break year i think you're trending towards that in year six for mike white the way this season's going and you know i mean is that reversible sure there's still again there's still a lot of basketball to be played uh you know but I think this is the stretch of Florida's schedule starting last Saturday at Vanderbilt where the Gators really have to take advantage. And, you know, hopefully they can do that this week. A Georgia team that doesn't play well on the road, an Ole Miss team that, you know, is going to have Bree and Tyree, but uh, that's not a terrible matchup for Florida. So I think kind of see if you can weather that storm. And, and we'll be back to uh, to talk about it. Thanks, everyone.